0: Thank you for tuning in to Emmanuel Faith Community Church. We hope you enjoy today's sermon. Good morning, Emmanuel Faith. Happy Mother's Day to all the moms out there, really just so thankful, um, but also recognize that Mother's Day is a bit of a double-edged sword. Um, and for some, it's a day filled with joy as you get to reflect on either being a mom yourself or the mom that you have that you're close to. Um, and then for others, um, it's, a, it's a day of mourning uh, and where you maybe have a void, where you used to have uh, a mom that filled that void or maybe even growing up, uh, it was a challenge for you, relationship with your mom, or maybe you longed to be a mom and uh, at this point you're not. Uh, I just want you to know that we see all of you And um, the scriptures call us to rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. And so today is a fitting day to do that. But to all who offer maternal care and love and encouragement and support, I just want to say from the bottom of my heart and collectively from all of us, thank you. Thank you. Amen. Uh, today, uh, opening up the scriptures, and we get to continue our series in discovering Jesus, and we we're in John chapter 2, and John chapter 2 begins with a wedding. Now, as I was just thinking about uh, this scene, very few life events evoke more emotion than a wedding. They're, they're filled with excitement and new beginning, anticipation of life together, and, and just the celebration of, of love and life in general. Every wedding I've had the chance to officiate, I I try to say something like this. We were made for moments like this. We spend all of our life living, but then there are some moments that remind us why we are alive. And that's the reason that the average couple will spend roughly $30,000 on their wedding. God help us all. It's the reason that an estimated 30 million Americans tuned in to see Prince Harry and Meghan Markle get married. That Americans, he's not even our prince. And by the way, what does a prince even do? 30,000 of us in the middle of the night, evidently, were tuned in to see this wedding. Why? Because weddings are times when our, our hearts are just flooded with, with joy. The joy of a, of a couple uniting themselves and covenantal commitment to each other, and and I don't know about you, but in a world that oftentimes feels just chaotic, like at at any moment it could spin out of control, these moments are, are grounding glimmers of hope that give us reason for drinking deeply of the joy that's just all around us. The very first wedding I ever remember going to was one that I got to play a part in. I was my uncle's ring bearer. And I can just tell you that like my head popped off the pillow that day. I was so excited. I had my freshly pressed Dockers and I had my red bow tie. I had gone through the rehearsal and I knew the drill. The guys were gonna walk in from the side with the pastor. The uh, bridesmaids were gonna walk down the aisle. And after they walked down the aisle, I was gonna walk hand in hand with the flower girl. She was gonna throw flowers and I was going to deliver the rings. Now I want you to notice that the flower girl has her flowers. And I want you to also notice that the ring bearer has no rings. (laughs) You guys, I got up to the front of said church. The flower girl tapered off like she was supposed to and I stood there and the pastor says to me, the rings, you had one job, Ryan. (laughs) One job. And I, I, I stood there. I can remember feeling as naked as the day I was born. And my face went from that to, oh no, it's due today, right? It was like, it was that moment. And I looked at the pastor and I turned and I ran down the aisle as quick as I could grabbed the rings from where I had set them in the narthex, put them under my arm like a running back holds a football. And I ran back towards the front of the aisle and I just gave them to the pastor, sir, your rings. And God has now seen fit for me to officiate weddings. He's like, we're gonna work on that, refine it over time. And eventually you're gonna get it. Now, th- whenever I officiate a wedding, there's a reason that I look at the couple and I say, you're not gonna really give the rings to the ring bearer, are you? Uh, we've, we've changed our methodology since then for good reason, for good reason. As I stood there, empty handed and exposed, I-, I just, my heart sank. And as I've reflected on that moment, I I, I don't know that there's any worse feeling than anticipating joy and experiencing shame. Where, where, Where your anticipation is overflowing and the bottom just falls out of it. Now, now my guess is that you probably haven't been standing in front of a group of people that's supposed to be holding rings with nothing. Um, But my guess is you probably have experienced the feeling of anticipating joy and just having the wind knocked out of you. And it may have been around, not, maybe not a wedding, but around a marriage. You experienced, you, you thought it would last forever. You said, I do, and it just felt like the bottom fell out of it. Or maybe it was a financial decision you made. You thought, this is trending up, and certainly it's going to keep going up, so I'm putting money in, and the bottom fell out of it. Or maybe it was just journeying through the last few years together as a society where it just felt like it was one sucker punch after another. <laughs> My guess is you've had that experience where you anticipated joy and what you received was, was shame. The New York Times in September of 2019 ran an article entitled, entitled, Are We Living in a Post-Happiness World? A post-happiness world. This was before the COVID pandemic. I mean, is that, is that possible to live in a post-happiness world? <laughs> um, In his book on joy, author Douglas Abrams said this. He said, in an age of despair, choosing joy is a revolutionary act. And I think he's right. I think he's right. And I think that choosing joy as a revolutionary act is distinctly a part of the revolution that Jesus brings. So what if Jesus wants to aid us in our pursuit of revolutionary joy? What if Jesus wants to meet us when it feels like the bottom just falls out of life and we're anticipating joy, but we experience shame? What if Jesus uses those empty vessels as places to put his deepest hope and his most ardent joy? What if? If you have your Bible, would you open with me to John chapter two? John chapter two. Now I know this, today is Mother's Day. And I know that many of you came expecting a Mother's Day sermon, whatever that is. But Jesus' mom is a part of this passage. Henceforth, this is a Mother's Day sermon. If you disagree, you can send your emails to jjohnson at efcc.org. Here's what I'd like to do. I'd like to read the entire passage up front to give us an overview of where we're going so you have this scene in your mind, and then we'll go back and we'll talk about a few of the details. John chapter two, starting in verse one. Are you there? Wonderful, here we go. It says this. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there, and Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? Happy Mother's Day. (laughs) My hour has not yet come. And his mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water, and they filled them to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now became, become wine, and did not know where it come from, although the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely, the poor wine, but you. You have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did in Cana and Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. This is the first of his signs. But let's be honest, it may be the last that we would expect. I mean, if this is Jesus's sort of arrival to the party. He does it in relative obscurity. Very few people know what's taking place. And his first sign isn't healing the sick. It's not driving out a demon. It's not even confronting or defeating any evil. It's turning water into wine. So why a wedding and why wine? Well, first a wedding, a wedding back in Jesus's day is similar to our day is a a time of celebration. They would last, weddings would last five to seven days. Who's signing up for that one, right? And the people that were hosting the wedding were just that they were a host, And they longed to feed people, they longed to give people a great time, and it was their desire and their goal to make sure everybody knew that they were cared for by the way that they presented this festival and party. So when you ran out of wine or you ran out of food, it was a massive social faux pas, which begs the question, does Jesus care about social standing? Does Jesus care about public relationships? Does Jesus care about cultural shame? I mean, before these stories, I would have presumed, I don't know that he's concerned with that. But, but I think what we learn here is that if it's close to our heart, it's close to his. If we hurt, so does he. So a wedding, but second, second wine. And this is a bit more difficult um, of, of late, the last century or so. It's been debated whether or not this was actually wine or whether it was Welch's grape juice. The text says wine, and it doesn't just say wine, but it says it was really good wine. So I'm going with the text on this one, and on all of them, by the way. But I do want to be sensitive to the fact that um, as many people as we have in this room and those watching online we probably have that many different relationships with alcohol. Some of you grew up in families where you saw substance abuse and maybe you've walked through addiction yourself. And so you read something like this and, and, and it just maybe touches a place in your heart that's really tender. And for others, you haven't had that same journey and that's not part of your story. So it's not as challenging for you to see. But what I want us all to come around is that wine in this text is a symbol of something deeper than just the wine. It's a picture that Jesus is trying to paint. And if you're going to read through the scriptures, the very first time you get to this, um, uh, the word wine is in Genesis chapter 9, and uh, wine doesn't get off to all that good of a start, just got to be honest. After the flood, uh, Noah drinks wine, and he gets drunk and naked, and that was not a good thing, Okay. A few chapters later, Genesis chapter 14, we see Abram going to see Melchizedek, and Melchizedek meets Abram, and he has bread and wine with him. It was a picture of hospitality. It was a picture of welcome. It was a picture of joy and gladness. And as you trace wine throughout the scriptures, it's consistently that picture. Hospitality, welcome, joy, and gladness so that the lack of wine throughout scripture comes to be known as or seen as a way that God brings about his judgment or just a picture of there being a lack of joy. Listen to the way that Jeremiah put it. Gladness and joy have been taken away from the fruitful land of Moab. I have made the wine, what? Cease, it came to a stop from the wine press. No one treads them with shouts of, joy. The shouting is not the shout of joy, because when they would tread on the wine press, they would sing. They were getting ready to receive the fruit of God's blessing. They had seen God's handiwork. The grapes had grown. They'd ripened. They'd been picked, and now they were being stomped to be made into wine. It was a picture of Joy. The rabbis used to say that without wine, there is no joy. So when the wine runs out, what's the picture John wants us to see? The joy is running out. The joy is running dry. It's fascinating to me that John has already told us that Jesus is the light, that Jesus is the creator of it all. Jesus is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And now in his second chapter, we start to see that when Jesus shows up, he brings joy. He brings joy, that Jesus's presence brings abundant joy. And if Jesus is present, joy is possible. Let me just say that again. Some of you need to hear it. If Jesus is present, joy is possible. There is this old Peanuts cartoon in the 1960s that said, happiness is a warm puppy. Now, if you've ever had a puppy, you know that having a puppy is a delicate blend of happiness and rage. Okay, it's sort of, it's both. And happiness may be a warm puppy, but joy is the presence of Of Jesus, That's what John wants us to see in this text. And what I want to do is spend the next few minutes just unpacking how the presence of Jesus brings about not just a little bit of joy, but an abundance of joy. So if you have your Bible open with me, go back to verse 1. Because we're going to just walk through this passage and make a few notes about the way that Jesus' presence brings about joy. Verse 1. It says, And on the third, what? Third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. Those two places are about seven to eight miles apart. And the mother of Jesus was there. Sorry, um, uh, Nazareth, where Jesus is from, is about eight miles from Cana in Galilee. The third day. Why would John let us know that it's the third day? What's really interesting is if you read through John chapter one and you track the days because John is intent on letting us know which day things are happening on, this is actually the seventh day that this miracle takes place. But it's the third day of the week. Why would John tell us that? Well, well, maybe he's putting down these breadcrumbs for something else that happens on the third day, which is the, which is the resurrection, right? (laughs) Maybe he was just anticipating Mac Powell's musical prowess, and he was leading us toward the band Third Day. Maybe not. Okay. Um, or, or, this is your weekly reminder that John is telling a recreation story. Something happened on the third day of creation. We should ask ourselves, well, what happened on the third day of creation? I'm so glad you asked that. God said, let the earth sprout vegetation plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit in which their seed each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so the earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds and trees bearing fruit in which their seed each according to their kind to its kind. And God saw that it was good and there was evening and there was morning the what third day. What a wild coincidence That on the third day of creation, God creates plants and and bushes that bear fruit. And on the third day, Jesus interacts with wine. What a wild coincidence. It's almost like all of these things are supposed to work together. It's as though Jesus is saying, yeah, he created it. We created it on the third day and it's still really, really good. Now, um, this next verse just stopped me in my tracks. It says this, Jesus was also what? Invited, invited to the wedding with his disciples. So why was Jesus at the wedding? He because he was invited. If Jesus had not been invited, would he have been at the wedding? No, no. no. See, Jesus is no wedding crasher. He's also no life crasher. He comes where he's invited. He comes where he's wanted. Now, certainly, certainly he will make himself known to you. He will draw you. He will woo you. But he will not force himself on anyone. As Pastor John Tyson so aptly put, God comes where he's wanted. If you have your Bible journal out there, just circle that word invited because that's the first thing we see about the way that Jesus' joy infuses this situation. He is welcomed through invitation. He's welcomed through invitation. And I love, I love the fact that he's not just welcomed when things are going great. And he's not just welcomed when life is like up and to the right but he's welcomed into the wedding in general. And I don't know how many days the party goes on before they start to run out of wine, but he's there when it's good and he's there when it's bad. That's a word for some of you in this room today. And I just wanna remind us that they get to this point where the people say they have no wine. That's what his mom says to him. And I think what we learn about Jesus is that we welcome Jesus through invitation, not only into our celebration, but also into our frustration, also into our frustration. They have no wine, his mom says. It says, oh, she's saying, like, get to work, son, or can't you do something about it? Or, or, oh, no, these people are going to be shamed by their community. We've got to step in. And she not only says, you're invited to the wedding, the family does, but she says, you're invited into the problem. And I wonder what types of frustrations, what types of questions, what dark night of the soul maybe right now you're walking through and Jesus is saying, would you invite me into it? For all the the moms in this space, for how many nights you've laid in bed just praying, what you're doing is you're inviting Jesus into the problem, into the frustration. And I love this little exchange that happens between Jesus and his mom. Verse four. And Jesus said to her, what does that have to do with me? Like, yeah, they're out of wine. Why is that my problem? My hour has not yet come. Woman, what does that have to do with me? feels so much like a pejorative in our context. Like it's a, it has a biting sort of, tone to it, at least the way that we read it. But back in Jesus's day, it wouldn't necessarily have been read like that. It could have just been simply, um, my lady, why dost thou involve me in such minuscule problems, right? I don't know. But the next part of it is hilarious. The next line is like pure gold, because here's the deal. Uh, Jesus's mom says, do whatever he tells you. Now, I just imagine Jesus' mom looking at Jesus when she's talking to the servants. <laughs> Do whatever he tells you. And if you're Jesus' mom, you're not allowed to use the phrase I brought you into this world, and I will take you out. It doesn't, doesn't work that way, because Jesus is like, well, actually, I was before time, and mom, we've talked about this. Without me, nothing was made that was made. Have you read the first part of, but I love that Jesus' mom still holds some sort of weight in his life, And he says, listen, once I step onto the scene, that means the countdown begins for me to go to the cross. That's my hour of glorification, uh, my hour of coronation, the hour I came for to pay the sin of the world. And once I step onto the scene, the clock starts ticking and my time here is limited. My time has not yet come, Mom. Come on, Mom. Mom, are you serious? Mom, fine. Fine. Verse 6. Now, there were six stone water jars there for, would you just read what's in blue with me, Emmanuel Faith? Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Now, I'm convinced that the details John includes are really, really important to discerning the point that Jesus is making. And we are told not that there are jars there, But there are jars there that were used for a very specific purpose. So the Jewish people, through the tradition of their elders, believed that in order to be ceremonially ceremonially clean, before you ate, before you did certain activities, you needed to go and you needed to wash your hands with pure water... And then you would be able to eat and go about your day. If you go to Israel today, go into a public restroom, there are still pitchers there today that are used for ceremonial washing. Now, I love that John tells us that it's that water that was used to operate within the law, that was used for people to make themselves clean, that was used in order to stay in line with the tradition of the elders and the religious authorities, that that's the water that Jesus goes to and turns into wine. Oh. Like this, this is a beautiful picture friend because Jesus is taking the symbols of ritual purification and he's turning them into pictures of divine welcome and joy. He's taking elements that people used to make themselves clean and he's saying, "I will transform it. I will make it new. I will bring it to life." He's taking a picture of law and he is in using it with hospitality, welcome, joy, and grace. And in this one act where he turns water into wine, we see that his joy is accessed through grace. It's not perform, it's receive, it's not do, it's done, it's not you, it's him, Tim, him. And within three years, Jesus is gonna take a, a glass of wine, He's gonna gather his apostles around a table and he's gonna to say to them, speaking about that wine, he's gonna to say to them, this is bl- my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sin. Your sin, he says, that I'm gonna forgive through my blood. It's not your washing that makes you clean. It's his blood It's his grace, it's his mercy. And here's why I think that's so important because if for us, if we imagine that we step into the joy of Jesus through our own performance or our own accomplishments or our own perfection, joy will always be a fleeting shadow or a distant hope, but it will never be an experienced reality. But I have better news, I have gospel for you today, friends. I wanna speak a better word over your life. Today, friends, his joy is possible, not because of your performance, but because of his provision. His joy is possible, not through executing the law, but through the grace that he longs to pour out into your life right now, today, in the midst of all the issues, in the midst of all the challenges, in the midst of the sin that you're struggling with, he still (laughs) turns water into wine today, right now. So if you'll cry out to him and say, God, would you transform me? Would you take the water that I'd love to use in order to make myself clean, and would you transform it? His answer to you is yes, yes. And I think so many of us imagine that we are cr- climbing a ladder up to God, and maybe, just maybe, we'll get to that ladder that's joy, but the reality is is that God has climbed down to us, and he says, I will turn your water into wine. I love this picture in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah where the prophet Isaiah says, come everyone who thirsts. You thirsty? He says, come. Come to the waters. See who has no money. Come buy and eat. Come buy wine, man milk, without money and without cost. Come and buy and buy the way. It's free. It's free. Just receive it. It's a gift from him. Now, I just need to point out that six stone jars of 20 to 30 gallons each, let's split the difference and just assume that there are 150 gallons of water present in these jars. If you're wondering, Ryan, how much wine would that actually be? I'm so glad you asked. That would be 150 gallons of wine, which is about 768 bottles of wine, or 3,840 glasses of wine. If you're wondering, Ryan, how many grapes would it take to make that much wine? I'm so glad you asked. It would be roughly 2,000 pounds of grapes. At the beginning, I said that Jesus's presence brings about abundant joy. This is a picture of joy. Oh, by the way, it's not two buck chuck. It's like the good stuff. That's what the master of the ceremony says. He's like, this is the really, really good wine. So it's not just good in quantity, it's good in quality too. And I think this wine is a picture of God's grace that never runs out on us, that never fails us. Grace upon grace, or we might even say grapes upon grapes, but where sin abounds if you know it say it with me grace abounds all the more so how do we experience this this joy and this welcome from god let's keep reading jesus said to the servants fill the jars with water and they filled them to the brim everybody say to the brim And he said to them, now draw out some and take it to the master of the feast. The master of the feast was somebody who the family chose in order to oversee the the, the party portion of the wedding. And it says, and so they took it. And I love that in blue I've highlighted for us, there's two um, acts of obedience that the people who are a part of this feast do as a part of the miracle that Jesus does. They filled it to the brim. And I love that because they're not cutting corners they're not like, Jesus, why? Or Jesus, how, how much do you want us to fill him? They just, they just take water and they're like, he said to do it, so we're going to do it. And I love the way that the great preacher Charles Spurgeon put it when he said, in fulfilling Christ's commands, my dear brothers and sisters, let us go to their wildest extent. Let us fill them to the brim. So when Jesus says, forgive those who wrong you, like let's, let's fill that to the brim. When he says, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, let's fill that to the brim. When he calls us to be people who pray for those who persecute us, let's, let's fill that to the brim. When he calls us to love, let's love to the end. Let's make his love complete in the way that we interact with one another. And I I love this picture because notice that the amount of wine or joy that was created by Jesus is in direct correlation to the amount of water that was present through obedience. Did you catch that? The amount of wine that was created by Jesus is in direct correlation to the amount of water that was created through or given through obedience. (laughs) So what if the amount of joy that you experience, the amount of joy that I experience is in direct correlation to the extent of our obedience. See, see, Jesus's joy is experienced through obedience. It's what we see in this text. Now, here's what I wanna do. I just wanna pause, and if you're tracking with me, and you were like, yes and amen, it's about grace, it's not about law, preach it, Ryan, you go. And now, now I say, and his joy is experienced through obedience, you might be like, Whoa, 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 what was all that grace talk? I was on board with that. This is a little bit out of left field now. It might appear that there's a bit of, of tension. But here's what I want to try to make clear. I stated that the way that Jesus interacts with us is based on grace, not law. To that I, aid my, I add my hearty amen. We do not clean ourselves up. We are washed Clean by his blood, through his grace that we step into by faith. There is no doubt about that. So, where does obedience fit into the picture? We aren't earning anything from God through obedience, but through obedience, we position ourselves to receive what Jesus is pouring out. How many of you believe that Jesus is always pouring out blessing? It's his nature, it's his character. It's who he is. It's what he does. But the way that I live either aligns myself with his way in his heart and allows me to experience his joy and blessing or it doesn't. It doesn't. This is divine partnership. The servant's obedience does not turn the water into wine, but it is the very way that everybody at that wedding gets to experience the water that was turned into wine. I, think, I, I want you to have this image in your head about obedience. I, I think obedience is sort of like a reservoir in our soul that creates space for us to receive and capacity for us to receive the goodness and joy and blessing that Jesus is pouring out. I I don't know about you, but this winter when we got all this rain and um, the Lake Hodges Dam was still under repair, every time it rained, I'm like, somebody needs to be working on that dam. Like, please, please, Jesus, let them finish the dam so that the water can rise and so that all of that water can be usable. I think this picture is a picture of life that's, that's not obedient to the way and heart of Jesus. Jesus is pouring out blessing, but we're not able to receive it. We're not able to, we don't have capacity to house it and to experience it and to go, oh, I've tasted and seen that God is good. His blessing hits us and then it just rolls right off of us. Please hear me, please hear me. Obedience does not create God's blessing. What it does is increase our capacity to receive and experience his blessing. Obedience is the pathway to abundance. That means that when God gives us a command, what he's really saying is this is an invitation to deeper joy. Follow me. Live in my way with my heart. Follow me and step into my joy. Fill it to the brim and I will transform every drop of it. Bring all you have and I will make all things new. So, so let me just ask you, what might Jesus, what, what, what kind of obedience, what type, what, what type of um, maybe even issues or roadblocks that you're facing, do you sense Jesus saying, come to me? Obey me. I've got deeper joy. Yeah, love, even though they're cold. Keep loving. Forgive even though you've been wronged. Keep forgiving. And what a great picture of Jesus, the joy bringer. That, that he, we welcome him through invitation. J- Jesus, we want you to show up in our life. That we access what he's given through grace, not through law. And that we experience it as we obey. Listen to the way the story ends. When the master of the feast tasted the water that had become wine, and he did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called to the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. Someone on our writing team, we write daily devotions that go out with, um, uh, on Monday that co- correspond with all these messages. Yeah, I'd encourage you to hop online and sign up if you haven't. But somebody in our writing team uh, uh, 10 days ago mentioned that they just absolutely love the fact that Jesus stays till the end. That like He's not a wedding crasher, but he's also not ditching out early. And, and all the things that the Messiah has to do, he's staying at this wedding until the end. And not only that not only that but he's not a wedding crasher and he also brings really really good gifts to weddings okay but I love this picture that Jesus stays until the end and that he saves the best for last that's so good That's so good. I just want to encourage you to hold on to that truth that Jesus is with you to the end, that not death, nor life, nor angels, or principalities, or anything else in all of creation can separate you from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus our Lord. He is with you to the end, and he always saves the best for last. And the fact that it's not last means that we have yet to experience his best. That was true at this wedding, and it's true in our lives Period. So in verse 11, John, uh, John does a bit of interpretation for us about what's just happened and what people have just seen. This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana and Galilee and manifested his glory. And the disciples believed in him. John interprets this as a sign. Not, not just a miracle, but a sign that was pointing to something else. He organizes his book around seven different signs that Jesus did. But the fact that this is is distinctly the first sign, that Jesus turning water into wine isn't really about him turning water into wine. It's about something that's coming down the road because that's what signs do. They tell you what's coming. Um, Every time we drive back to Colorado, we pass this sign Welcome to colorful Colorado. It's a sign. Now, how terrible would it be if we turned around at the sign and said, well, we've experienced Colorado. I can assure you that this is as green as this place looks. This is like spring when the snow's just melted. If you drive there in summer, this is desolate and it's just brown. How terrible would it be if we were like, well, we've seen the sign, and we've experienced Colorado, and and now we are going home. No, the sign is pointing to something that's to come. The the sign is pointing to something that's more beautiful, more majestic, maybe even more than we could even take in today. So what's to come? What's what's the sign that Jesus is pointing to that this wedding distinctly points us to? Towards Well, I would argue that wine is not only a symbol of joy and welcome, but it's also a picture of new creation, of what God will one day do when he restores this earth and when we in resurrected bodies get to enjoy him in, uh, in all of its fullness. Isaiah the prophet would write this in Isaiah chapter 25. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine. Of food, rich food, full of marrow, of aged wine, well refined, and he will swallow up on this mountain. The covering that is cast over all the peoples, the veil that is spread over all the nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. The reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. And in John chapter two, in this wedding that's running out of wine, Isaiah chapter 28 is dancing in the background. And in Isaiah chapter 25, what we see is that at the same time that we are consuming great food and great drinks, God himself is consuming and destroying and ending our greatest enemy death. And it's a picture of what ultimately one day will come I entitled this message full body joy because Jesus is filling up the joy at this wedding but he's pointing us towards a time when our joy will be made complete and his joy in us will be made full He's pointing us to a day where death will have no more say, where there will be no more crying, no more sorrow, no more tears, where the old order of things will be gone. Friends, there will come a day when all the believers in Jesus will be gathered at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And there we will taste his joy in all of its fullness. We will experience his grace that saved us, that's redeemed us. And we will know in that day that our God has indeed saved the best for last and that he will be with us to the end. And I love that that God who has all these cosmic powers enters into our daily lives and cares about what we might say is just normal. And he says, I wanna meet you in the frustration. I wanna meet you in the struggle. And I wanna meet you, and then I wanna point you to the fact that you will never be standing in front of me, supposed to be holding rings that you brought down the aisle, and you will never be standing in front of me with the joy falling out underneath you. I will hold you fast, Jesus says. So happy Mother's Day. But for all of us who follow Jesus, the invitation is, man, when Jesus is present, abundant joy is possible. And some of you came into this space today and the joy meter in your life is just running low. And I felt led this whole week to just to pray over you. And it may be around this day specifically, maybe around just situations in life that have come up and you just feel like the wind has gotten knocked out of you where joy is this like shadow that you chase, but something that you never really taste. So I wanna pray for you. And if that's you, I want you to make the bold step of would you just stand up? You can put your stuff away. But if, if you're in that place today and you're going, man, Ryan, I just, I long for more joy. I long for Jesus to pour his joy into my soul. Just invite you to stand up. Don't let this moment pass you by. And Jesus is calling us to respond. He's calling us to say, yeah, we're gonna bring the water of our lives and we're gonna ask him to turn it into joy. Transformed by him. Let's pray, let's pray. If you so feel led to stand up when even halfway through, I invite you to do it, Jesus by the power of your spirit, I pray that you would fill each of these lives, these people who are saying, yes, Lord, that's me, that you would fill them with divine joy. Like, like fill them with the really good stuff, Jesus. You promise that your spirit pours out the love of God into our hearts. Lord, I pray for the joy of knowing, for each of these people standing, for the joy of knowing that they are loved. Jesus, infuse that into their soul. Lord, I pray for every person standing and every person's heart that even just cries out, where they don't feel seen or known by you, Jesus, would you just allow them right now in this moment to know and to experience being seen by you. Spirit, come. Lord, I pray for the people that are standing and they've they've walked through depression. They're walking with anxiety and they're just wondering how in the world could God meet me in this place? Lord, I pray that you would meet them by the power of your spirit, that you would minister to them. Pour out your joy into their life would you turn the water of our lives into the wine of divine joy and gladness and welcome and hospitality spirit of god do your work infuse your joy we pray in jesus name amen thank you for listening to our service we'd love to have you join us in person for more information about our church and service times, please visit efcc.org. If you would like to support the ministries of Emmanuel Faith, you can do so at efcc.org give.